Hi everybody, Pete Sardis for The Lawyer You Know, and today we are back to talk about Elizabeth Holmes and the Theranos trial that is going on in California as we speak. Uh, if you like these videos, let me know you like them in the comments. Uh, if you're enjoying the content of this, the show, please hit subscribe. Let's see what's going on. All right, so much has happened since last week's episode till now. First things first, apparently this trial is such a big deal in California that there is standing room only in the courtroom. So what has happened is Balwani, who is the boyfriend or the former boyfriend, I should say, of Elizabeth Holmes and the COO, the chief operating officer of Theranos, who's also been charged as a co-defendant of Elizabeth Holmes, um, his lawyers filed a motion. And the motion they filed was they want two dedicated guaranteed seats in the audience so that they can watch the trial. The motion basically says, because the government is going to try Elizabeth Holmes first, they're gonna have an opportunity to evaluate prosecution tactics. They're gonna be able to talk specifically to, to, to witnesses and that the defense is somehow gonna be adversely affected if they're not physically present to be able to watch all of this pan out. Now, what the judge did was he denied the motion saying that he's not gonna reserve two guaranteed seats for the lawyers for Mr. Balwani, but he said, if you wanna to come to court, just show up to court on time and have a seat. Realities between you and me, this proceeding, like all federal judicial proceedings, are uh, reported in real time. So there's a court reporter inside the, uh, in the courtroom during the trial. If the lawyers really want a copy of, uh, of the material so they can know what's going on in real time, they could actually ask the court reporter to give them a transcript, which I'm sure is what they're going to do. But again, I figured if they had somebody live, it would maybe give them a chance to get a feel for how witnesses are coming across in real time. So that's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened on Friday was, it was kind of one of those things that makes you go, oh no. One of the jurors apparently had contact with somebody that was COVID-19 positive. They brought it to the court's attention, which is exactly what they're supposed to do. And the judge basically gave the jury off for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and reevaluated the circumstances of where they are on Monday. Thankfully, nobody seemed to have any reaction. Everybody was asymptomatic. So the judges decided, let's go forward as of Monday, which is exactly what they did. First witness out of the box was a gal by the name of Denise Yam. And her testimony is important because she is the former comptroller of Theranos. And what that means is she was the chief accountant and her job was to make sure all the books of the company were were done right and kept the you know kept all the numbers. There are two major issues about her testimony. The first one was a motion that was filed by the defense a while ago. And that motion is something called a motion in limine. And a motion in limine is designed to limit the evidence that the jury actually hears because of one reason or another. In this specific instance, the information that the defense wanted to keep out was the fact that Miss Yam was going to testify that there was a $2,000 jewelry purchase and she was also aware of numerous private jet trips that Elizabeth Holmes had taken on the company. The reason that the uh, defense wanted to keep it out was her testimony was that she did not know the details about the private jet uh, travel and she also didn't know the specifics about the jewelry. And I'll tell you why that's important. We'll look at it from both sides. From the prosecutor's perspective, it shows you know, conscious use of corporate assets that are probably not appropriate. 
from the defense side is, well, you don't really know what that is because you're the CEO of a $9 billion company. You're going to have some private jet travel. And unless you can prove or unless there's some indicia of reliability that that private jet travel is not for legitimate business purpose, you shouldn't taint the jury with it. Same thing with the jewelry. You're going to say, well, what possibly could $2,000 worth of jewelry have anything to do with the corporation? Well, you don't know. Did they buy everybody commemorative Theranos pins for a specific event? Uh, did they buy plaques and uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe articles for to give away to, to the employees? We don't know, and neither did she. So at this point, the judge has reserved ruling, which means the judge hasn't said yes, hasn't said no, but the point was, if the government intends to elicit that information, they're gonna have to go talk to the judge and the defense counsel first so that the judge can make a determination about whether the jury should hear it or not. So at this point, it doesn't seem like that's happened. We shall see how that goes forward. The second thing that she did testify to was, in my opinion, interesting. She testified that early on during the Theranos years, there were about $2 million per week in cash expenditures done by Elizabeth Holmes. Well, that's kind of a lot of money. So one of the issues that is going to become obviously big in this case, is going to be, did she know that the things she was doing was not appropriate? Now, what are you doing with $2 million a week of expenditure in a company that uh, you know hasn't yet gone public? I don't know. And that's one of the topics of discussion for her testimony uh, over the last couple of days. In addition, uh, they used this witness to be able to kind of set the framework for the company's financials. Now, this is going to be something that's a little bit difficult in big financial fraud cases. Realities. You're talking about a $9 billion company doing business almost over the course of a decade. There are going to be spreadsheets upon spreadsheets upon spreadsheets of information. And they're going to use various accounting persons and federal agents to testify to what these numbers actually mean. The, the rule of thumb basically, or, or the saying I should say, amongst white collar crime defense lawyers and prosecutors is the numbers don't lie. You can't make the numbers lie. One plus one always equals two. The hard part though about this is the presentation of this type of evidence because you're talking about volumes of spreadsheets. You know, a prosecutor and a couple of analysts and some accountants may have spent days or weeks combing through something to come up to an explanation as to why they believe this is indicia of fraud. They all as a group understand what the fraud is and know what they want to present. But the problem is sometimes there's a a loss in the translation. And what I mean by that is when you know something and you understand how it works in your head, sometimes you lack the ability to impart that information onto a jury. And it's kind of a big deal in this case because most jurors don't like numbers. They don't really understand the accounting. So if you get to a point where you're presenting all these big things, but you're not really bringing the information around so the jury understands why this is a problem, a lot of jurors will just blank out and they just not, they're not listening to any of this thing. The second thing is that it sometimes backfires on the prosecution if it is so seemingly complicated to explain it. How could one person have understood all this stuff was going on in a, you know, a multi-employee company as it was happening in real time? So those are the things that the prosecution is going to have to be careful about. We'll see how that unfolds as it goes. Second witness, Erica Chung. Erica Chung is one of the whistleblowers on Theranos, and her testimony uh, is actually going on, it was yesterday and today, which is September 15th, so she's going to continue testifying today. But the basic gist for her is this. 
She is the person that knows that the Theranos product, it's called Edison, does not actually do what Elizabeth Holmes and the rest of the company were touting that it could do. And if you remember, we did this in the first video, Edison was supposed to revolutionize uh, the way that medical testing gets done, as opposed to having to take vials and vials of blood and send them to multiple laboratories to get test results done. Theranos' concept was that with a pinprick, with one little you know drop of blood, I could test for everything from diabetes all the way through to HIV instantaneously. And this was gonna revolutionize the healthcare industry. At this point, what we've found out is that this particular product, the Edison device, could only test for about 12 pathogens or 12 issues in the blood, which is obviously not all encompassing. The second part, and I think this is gonna be very difficult testimony to overcome, is that she's expected to testify, and it's probably happening as we're doing this, uh, this recording here, that she had advised the company, the board of directors and Elizabeth Holmes, that the testing they were actually doing was better when they tested with the standard traditional third-party software and, and testing devices that have been around forever as opposed to what Edison was giving them. And of course, this is a problem because if Theranos is taking in samples and then saying that they're, they're testing it and giving you results, but what they're really doing is sending that sample to third-party laboratories to get results well, that's going to be a problem for fraud, especially for telling everybody that this specific equipment is exactly what is testing and nothing else, which is what Elizabeth Holmes did a number of years ago when she went on one of these financial news uh, type of programs and said, we don't use third-party software. We use Edison and Edison tests for everything. So that's going to be an issue to see if she really knew at the time that Edison was not as viable as they thought it was at the time. Next. We've gotten some tidbits of information about what the defense in this case might be. And at this point, the defense looks like it's going to be mental defect or mental disease. And what that means is the defense is contemplating arguing, and we've talked about this before, that Balwani, who is the chief operating officer and former love interest of uh, Elizabeth Holmes, exerted such pressure over her because of their abusive, of his abusive relationship with her, that he made her do things that otherwise she would not have done. Uh, think of it like battered wife syndrome, something like that. This is a tough, tough defense. And let's just be clear, I don't know if this is going to be the defense. There's a lot that can happen between now and four weeks from now when the defense starts putting on their case in chief. And I'll tell you, somebody that's actually tried multi-week, multi-month cases, your defense morphs day by day, it'll change based on the evidence that's actually coming into uh, into the case and based on kind of how all the parts you know come together before your defense starts. So this may happen, it may not, but I'll tell you, these are hard defenses. Elizabeth Holmes has been touted to be like the golden child. She is the first self-made female billionaire. This is a gal that dropped out of school to start this humongous you know, boondoggle of a company that was supposed to revolutionize the world. So what they're um, going to be fighting is, A, we saw her on TV, we saw her in the media, we saw her in her normal day-to-day -day operations, and she is super smart, and she is super confident, and she went out there and touted the company. So on the other side, what you're going to be hearing the defense arguing was, well, that was her public persona. 
Privately, though, she was agonizing because she was doing things that she either knew weren't right or didn't have any control over because her abusive boyfriend basically told her, if you don't do this, there's going to be ramifications. So that's a tough pill to swallow for a jury sometimes when the public persona is so strong, yet the private persona is touted to be somehow weak. So part two about this, and I'm curious to see how this works out. Let's be real. We are part of the the age of the Me Too movement. Time when people know the horrible things that women have to go through in business to get to the same level or to attempt to get to the same level as their male counterparts. We've seen it in the news, we've seen prosecutions, we've heard about it in like the Harvey Weinstein case about horrible things that these female actors needed to do in order to be able to get parts or to be able to progress their careers. So I think this is very real in, in today's day and age. But I think that the argument that this is a Me Too issue also, meaning that I'm a battered girlfriend and therefore I am doing things that I don't want to do but I have no choice but to do them, very well may backfire because jurors for the most part aren't stupid and I think they can smell BS. And if they feel that she's utilizing something that's kind of a, a big public issue at the moment for her own benefit, kind of like uh, latching onto it, for her own reasons, that could backfire because the jury may think, you know what, lady, Me Too movement aside, yeah, you you knew and intentionally did stuff and it had nothing to do with you know your boyfriend's influence over you. It just sometimes has a tendency to anger jurors. But again, I put put this out there. They haven't done it yet. This is not uh, you know a defense that we heard a witness talk about. It doesn't look like there's any questions about those topics yet. But that's just my ten cents. If you have any questions, again, please leave a comment below. I'll happily answer any questions you have about this case. Number two, if you find me doing stuff like pronouncing Silicon Valley wrong, I appreciate the constructive criticism. Please let me know about that stuff. I appreciate you. Again, if you like this video, hit like. If you're enjoying the content, hit subscribe, and we'll see you on the next round. Thanks for watching this episode of The Lawyer You Know. If you like this content, please share it with your friends. Make sure you subscribe to our page and like our videos. If you want some interaction, get in the comments and we'll be sure to get back to you. If you want to know any more information about our firm or this page, you can find out in the description or visit tragoslaw.com. We post multiple times throughout the week, so make sure you hit that bell so you can get the notification and not miss out on the next episode.